بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگس آف اللہ بی اپون یو او ویلکم ٹو انادر ایپیسوڈ آف دی ڈرائیو ٹائم شو ہے آن دا وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو ٹوڈے از ٹیوزڈے دی سیونٹینتھ آف اکٹوبر ٹوینٹی ٹوینٹی تھری ود ماسو شرجیل احمد as well how are you doing this uh, this afternoon assalamu alaikum jazakallah yeah alhamdulillah I'm well by the grace of allah uh, how are you today yeah alhamdulillah alhamdulillah i mean the weather is a bit up and down isn't it you can't really predict it you can't predict it at <laughs> you all. know what i just came back from uh, turkey and the weather wow. there was 30 degrees wow. and as soon as i landed about yeah. two days ago yeah. uh, i just noticed a, a complete yeah, change literally, literally. of before i went it was like yeah. 18 19 degrees in the mm-hmm. uk came back and it's freezing cold freezing cold isn't it uh, yeah but that's that's the thing that's the, i mean the, i mean I mean it is safe to say that we are deep into autumn um and um some people would disagree maybe but um it is yeah the weather the weather is quite difficult to to bear especially for for youngsters as well where obviously they have to get up in the morning go to school and the school runs can be quite you know quite challenging as well especially early in the morning when it's when it's so cold out and talking about you know talking about the weather and um talking about how cold it's actually getting the you know we we talk you know it's cold for people even at home right but especially for those people who you know maybe they don't even have a home maybe they don't have any shelter or you know or roof on top of their head and we're talking about homelessness we're talking about poverty um i mean homelessness is one in what is one aspect to poverty as well but specifically we're going to be talking about poverty um you know the the inequality uh, about it what can be done in regards to it in regards to it as well and obviously of course as we've gone through covid-19 the impact of what covid-19 the pandemic had on on poverty as well on a global scale not just here in the uk but on a global scale and of course as it is the voice of islam we're going to be talking about what islam says in regards to this as well and uh, the challenging things uh about how it addresses some of these things as well uh you know uh, how we can alleviate the pain of those people who are go- who are going through their you know a, a troublesome a troublesome time for far too long now poverty has been perceived as a immutable you know scourge of humanity however the notion that poverty is an inevitable part of the human condition is not only um you know it's not it's not it's not right because it's fundamentally flawed now poverty in reality is a is a societal ill that arises from a uh, a different you know a range of different factors and many of, of which can actually be addressed and uh, talked about <coughs> as well if we talk about mm-hmm. what the holy quran says uh right you know from the beginning chapter 9 verse 28 allah the almighty states in that that and if you fear poverty Allah will enrich you out of his bounty if he pleases surely Allah is all knowing wise um you know there's other there's other there's other verses as well there's other traditions narrations of the holy prophet of Islam peace and blessings of Allah be upon him how he has spoken about poverty spoken about those people who are going through a difficult time and how we should try our best to you know to 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 alleviate their pains some people you know they will ask for help there are other people who would not even ask for help uh, maybe they might feel shy maybe they might feel a bit um you know they might feel feel a bit hesitant to to ask for help but islam says that we should help all those people who who are in need doesn't matter if they ask for help if you see that their condition 
is that they need help and they're still not asking, you should show, you should still try your best to you know uh, help them as well. Um, and this is what the, this is what Islam teaches. Um, there's inequality in poverty as well. Isn't it? Talking about uh, the economic side to it um, and talking about economics, um, job structures and different <coughs> things which are related to that. Um, tell us a little bit more about, about yeah. So that. you know, um, Shajil, poverty. Um, it's a huge challenge um, in the current day and age that we live in. Um, it's a challenge which um, is being addressed. Um, mm. There's various organisations and various charities um, that are working towards eliminating poverty throughout the world, wherever it may be, whether it's in Asia, Africa, uh, the European countries. Mm. Um, it, it is being addressed, but to actually eliminate uh, poverty, it needs a global effort, right? Yeah, yeah. So, as you said, inequality is part of um, poverty. It's a different aspect of it. So, economic equality, it often marks the starting point of poverty's journey, right? Yeah. And quality education, which some um, youth or some children are deprived of, mm. um, they don't have access to education. Mm. Once they are provided that education, that becomes a guiding light and, and a source of like an engine of, proce- of progress on the road out of poverty. So if children are being given education, that could be one way how they can eliminate poverty for themselves. The close yeah. connection between poverty and poor health shows how deeply they affect each other. Hmm. Also, limited job opportunities can trap people in a never-ending cycle of poverty. We see that COVID, for example, you mentioned COVID in the beginning, how COVID, the impact of COVID, one of them was how jobs have uh, been decreased, um, how inflation has risen, Hmm. and how that has led to people going into poverty how that has left them um, without being able to pay their bills, without being able to provide for themselves, hmm. as opposed to how they were providing for themselves before COVID. Right. Housing crisis, um, as we see, I think is not just in the UK. UK does have a big problem of housing crisis. We see it in the news every so often. That also affects communities worldwide, um, and we need solutions to address them. I think we have done shows in the past um, addressing um, this issue as well. Hunger and malnutrition continue to affect many regions, impacting vulnerable populations. Financial exclusion is a significant roadblock on the path to reducing poverty. Right. Yeah. And also, lastly, gender inequality leaves a lasting mark on the story of poverty, making it hard to overcome. These were some of the aspects that uh, are to do with poverty and inequality and how um, if each aspect is worked on individually Mm. let's say you work on um, providing education that's a road out or a road to eliminating poverty Mm. if you provide job opportunities to individuals that is a source of their how they can eliminate poverty Mm. I mean there's different things which uh, which you know we can talk about and you just touched upon um, different things uh, different inequalities which are uh, which are you know leading factors for po- for poverty as well, yep. and all of these things are very much uh, significant. And quite rightly, what you just mentioned as well that that COVID nineteen had a, had a major impact in regards to this as well. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on as well. But to, you know, coming from coming from an Islamic perspective, we'll talk about the Islamic perspective as well in 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 more detail. 
But when it comes to Islam and when it comes to, let's say, for example, if we take education, right? A lot of people may think that, you know, Islam is such a backward and barbaric religion that it only tells or enforces its its, uh, male counterparts to actually, or the males to boys, to actually go out there and uh, achieve an education. But that's simply not the case. Islam says, in fact, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he he categorically, he said that it's it's not it's not something that you know you have a choice. It's it's incumbent upon every Muslim man and every Muslim woman to attain education. Yeah. And for those people who who say that no 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 it's only for it's only for the boys and leave the girls at home, they're just gonna you know grow up and uh, be be housewives anyway. No, that's not that's, that's simply completely not the case. contrary completely. to the teachings of Islam. Exactly, exactly. So that's just one of the things as well. Um, you know, if we get that straight, a lot of a lot of the questions uh, when it comes to inequality in 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 education that will be answered as well but um let's uh, let's get our let's get our guest our first guest for this part of the show who's on the line with us Isabel Taylor uh, who's an uh, an uh, analysis manager at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation where she works on projects looking at enterprises of poverty experiences of poverty and deep poverty across the UK as well um good afternoon and welcome to the show Isabel hello thanks for having me Thank you so much for joining us uh, this uh, this afternoon. Um, just to begin with, what unique approach or initiatives does the Joseph Rowntree Foundation employ in its fight against uh, you know this against poverty as a whole? Well, um, there is quite a long history um, in fighting against poverty, and um, social change was actually set up about hundred years ago by Joseph Rowntree. Sorry, Isabel, I'm going to have to just uh, let you go for one second uh, there okay. uh, one moment because um, j- your line's a little bit uh, fuzzy. We can't really hear you hear you that clearly. Oh. Um, can you sort of, I don't know, maybe move somewhere <laughs> where next to the window or something where we can hear you properly? Let's try to let's try to con- reconnect with Isabel Taylor. Uh, there again, because the line was uh, was not too great. We want we want to hear what she what she has to say in, in regards to this yeah, as well. Um, it's important. We were talking about we were talking about education before, isn't it? And uh, before we took Isabel on, and how it's important to to actually understand what Islam says in regards to in regards to education. It's not just uh, it's not just one side, or it's not just you know the, the boys or the males who are going to go out there and re- receive education. It's the women as well. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's something which all of us need to actually look into properly. And when we look at these fundamental teachings, then we can understand that, you know, Islam has promoted fairness in education. And obviously, if, if both the males, the females, boys and girls are going into education, achieving the same education, going through the same process, then obviously the, the jobs that they can have will be the same as well. So obviously, when it yeah. comes to eradicating the poverty uh, the inequality when it comes to education and then when it comes to the workforce which is the next step uh, after education that would also be the same as well so Islam doesn't simply say that you know all the men go out to work and women stay at home and they don't have jobs but if the women want to work obviously you know Islam says that male have the, the males the, the, the you know the fathers they have their own 
duty, which is to go yeah. out there and be the sole, the, the primary breadwinner. Bread but obviously, if the women want to go out, if the mothers want to go out and work as well, that's absolutely fine. Um, but obviously, their main uh, job or duty is to uh, you know, upbring the next generation. But obviously, if they do want to work still, they absolutely can. They, they, you know, they, it's nothing that it's not looked down upon for women to work, for mothers to go out there and work as well. So obviously, there are different things which we need to understand. Uh, understand. So these are two things, primarily. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, just a little bit later on as well. We're going to try again with uh, with Isabel Taylor. Isabel, are you there with us? I am. Yes. Can you oh, hear me? Okay. That's much better. That's much better. Great. So great. I asked. Um, I'm not sure if you heard the question properly as well, but what unique approach or initiatives does the Joseph Rowntree Foundation actually employ to to fight against poverty? Um, yeah, so uh, Joseph Rowntree Foundation has been in existence for more than 100 years now, um, and it was set up um, campaigning for social change mm. by Joseph Rowntree um, here in York, mm. and we continue to um, we continue to work to his legacy um, and with his endowment. And obviously over that time, the nature of poverty has changed a lot. And so the work of JRF has also changed over those 100 years. But we still have a very strong presence here in York where we have things like a housing trust. Mm-hmm. But we also continue to be dedicated to work to solve poverty through our own research and by engaging with people with direct experiences of poverty to make sure that our work is as relevant and as helpful as possible to those living in poverty today. Yeah. Yeah. So the kind of work I do, if it's if it's a bit help, if it's more helpful to talk about some specific examples, yeah. um, we do try and um, do very evidence-based and robust analysis um, that allows us to look at some of the causes and consequences of poverty that we need to address in the country today. So, for example, every year we publish a kind of state of the nation type report, which is kind of a go-to resource for a lot of people um, that sets out the experiences of poverty across the UK. Um, and last year's report showed that about 14.4 million people in the UK are living in poverty, and that includes 4.2 million children. So some really startling figures that we mm. really highlight in that report. But we're also very keen to make sure that the work we do looks at the things that will solve poverty, that will help bring people out of poverty. Um, so we've just done some work looking at experiences of very deep poverty in the UK. Mm. But what that's also looked at is the type of events that help people to move out of very deep poverty, so things um, that can help um, to increase their income or to reduce hardship, and the risk factors for people moving into poverty, and those are things like job loss or family breakdown and bereavement. So we really try not just to look at experiences of poverty, but also Mm -hmm. the types of things that could really help people who are living in hardship. So obviously that's what that's what the you know the the Joseph Rountree Foundation is actually doing as well to help that and that is a very commendable um, job that you guys are doing. Um, when it comes to the the government and uh, their policies, h- how do their policies and safetyness sort of help people who are facing uh, financial problems and difficulties? And you know, when they do help them, that obviously avoids them falling into long-term poverty, especially when it comes to finance. Um, is anything, any such thing in place? So I think the key thing remember to remember here is that there are things that governments can do, and even if they're not using all the policy levers that are available to them, it's a political choice for them to invoke policies that can really help um, lift people out of poverty or help people um, on very low incomes. So there are lots of things that they can do. Whether or not they're choosing to do those um, is, is their political choice. So... Um, for example, 
Um, changes to the benefit systems are one of the key ways in which they could help people um, currently living on very low incomes and currently in poverty. So mm. we know in this country that the current level of benefits is just not high enough to cover essential costs, so even things like food and heating for many families. Mm. Yeah. And so people on benefits are much more likely to be in poverty. And that's why uh, at JRF, along with um, the Trestle Trust and a number of other organisations, we're calling for an essential guarantee. And if that were in place, the government um, would set welfare benefit levels at a level that was sufficient to ensure that families uh, receive an income that never falls below the amount that they need to pay for these essentials. So government can and should do that to make sure people are not living in, po in poverty. But the policy levers that they have available to them are not just limited to welfare policies or to benefits, because we know that things like housing and unaffordable housing or in the employment market, insecure jobs or low paid jobs are real risk factors for people experiencing policy, uh, poverty. Sorry. Yeah. And the government can introduce policies to make those things better. Yeah, you know, we touched upon <clears throat> the education aspect and mm -hmm. how that can also help eliminate poverty. So how does education play a role in addressing generational, generational poverty? And are there any successful programs? We know that people with high levels of education do tend to get higher paying jobs and then that helps them to avoid living in poverty poverty later on and then also that can have a knock-on effect by protecting their children too so if they are in better paid jobs when they have families then they are better able to um, afford the essentials and to ensure that their children aren't living in poverty so there is this intergenerational effect that goes on there and we see things like uh, when we just compare poverty rates between people who have a undergraduate degree with those who don't we see much lower levels of poverty so i think it's about one in ten people with an undergraduate yeah. degree are in poverty compared to four in ten who don't have any qualifications at all so there's a clear difference there between those two groups yeah you're right but i think yeah carry sorry, on just to follow up on that as well i think the other side of this um story though as well is that we also know that there's a relationship in the other direction between education and poverty so there's a bit of a vicious cycle going on here because we know that there's this disadvantage gap between children who come from more disadvantaged families and less disadvantaged families. And even at a very young age, we see that there's lower attainment from children from low-income families and from higher-income families. So this starts right at the beginning of their, their school life um, and all the way up until, until they leave full-time schooling. And then later on, children whose parents are in professional or managerial occup occupations um, are more likely to go to university than those who aren't. So I think part of the um, part of the cycle that goes on, and part of a way to make sure that education is a route out of poverty for everybody, is to help uh, close those gaps as well. To make sure education opportunities linked to education are available to everybody as well. Yep. And Isabel, just finally, um, what strategies can we implement to encourage the passion and engagement of young people in the fight against poverty? It, so it enables them to be catalysts for positive change and economic justice. Well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a numbers person, I'm an analyst, so I always think the numbers help. When we talk about the number of people in poverty in the UK, we're talking about a huge number. As I said before, it's 14.4 yep. million people. That's one in five of the whole population. And I think that really reinforces how unacceptable it is, the level of poverty today. But I think there are two other things as well that are important to remember. Um, one is the stories of individuals, because behind that 14.4 million number, 
there are 14.4 million individuals with different stories and different experiences of poverty. And I think those often really bring to life what the lived experience is like for millions of people across this country and why we need to tackle poverty. And then the third thing I think that we always need to remember is that we can and should change things. We know how to reduce levels of poverty in this country. We know that things can be done. And I think that's the thing that really we all need to remember, that this is not a lost cause and that yeah. change can happen. We are not powerless in this area. Absolutely. Absolutely. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us and sh- shedding uh, light uh, with the with the foundation and you know the different good things that, that you guys are doing as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Very interesting listening to on speaking to to Isabel Taylor over there as well, and some good work that these guys are doing. Obviously, there are so many people, millions and millions of people, who are living in poverty, and obviously a a fraction, a, a you know, a good amount of that um, was it four million of that were children, um, and you know that's you know to help to help them is is absolutely something which uh, which everyone should be looking into, especially the especially the government as well, where you know. The working class are the ones that are suffering the most, right? The working yep. class, especially those people who, or, the, or those families who, you know, both parents are actually working. The mother, the father, they're, they're, you know, they're working maybe maybe multiple jobs, not just one job, but two or maybe even more than that as well. Um, and they are struggling to put bread and butter on the table. And the children are the ones that are suffering, but still, it's uh, it's it's something which you know different foundations, different charities actually coming together and looking into different ways to actually alleviate their pain, um, and that's you know something quite commendable work, isn't it? That they're doing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And you know, just like um, Isabel rightly mentioned at the end, that the numbers speak for itself, right? Speak for itself. Yeah. One one in five in the UK. In, we're talking about in the UK, a country which is uh, yeah. very well developed. Um, exactly. The government and foundation it has, it's very strong. And even one in five within the UK, mm. they, they're suffering from poverty. So just imagine the th- these countries um, which are less developed, yeah. how much poverty exists within them. Literally, yeah. And if countries like the UK and the European countries, if they can't tackle um, the poverty within their own countries, how difficult must be um, for the other for the other others, countries yeah. to to do so, exactly. um, but likewise, if we go back to the Islamic point of views, right? Islam is uh, th- it tells us how we can deal with various issues, various problems that the world is facing. Yeah. And regarding poverty, we have many um, a few verses of the Holy Quran that 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 states um, how we can actually do so. Right. And one of the pillars of Islam, if you, is zakat, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. the mandatory alms giving system. Uh, which is basically designed to redistribute wealth within society. It serves also as a means to alleviate poverty, right, ensure yeah. social justice, and protect national wealth from accumulating in the hands of a few. Yeah. And <clears throat> if zakat is co- uh, collected in a proper manner and it's distributed how it's meant to be distributed, if it's um, that can become a means to alleviate poverty, uh, at least specifically within those countries, uh, the Muslim countries. Um, and we obviously we can begin off with there, and then we can see. I mean, it's, it's true. It's true. I mean, like just like you mentioned, one of the five pillars of Islam is actually zakat, which is if if it's done properly, if it's done uh, according to what Islam actually says, um, collected and obviously distributed, then you know th- there won't be any poverty in that yeah. particular 
place or country or the state or whatever. And the the failure of this is, you know, if the people don't do this properly, don't collect the money properly, or when the money is collected, they don't distribute it properly, although, you know, the government keeps it for themselves. Mm. Or doesn't, it's not reaching the people reaching that the need people that need it, exactly. Money. Then it's uh, you know obviously then then it's you know then it's a matter of you know poverty rising up again because it, the because you know it, zakat literally means to take the money from the you know it's a small fraction of money it's that money which has been stored up in one you know for the for the course of one whole year and that hasn't been used so if that amount goes up by a specific amount that a fraction of that two point five percent of that would actually be taken from the rich people and given back to the poor people. So it's is their right. It's it's the it's, it's it's the poor people's right to actually receive that that amount of money as well. And the you know we see we see different uh, we did we see different countries which are going through a difficult time, such as um, you know African countries, Asian countries, um, other countries as well. I mean, we spoke to spoke to Isabel there as well, and she was saying here in the UK we we are living in poverty. There's a lot of people who are living in poverty as well here in the UK in the millions. Now, why is this the case? This is the case, or one of the reasons why, is because you know the the cost of living has has gone up so much. Inflation rates are so high, skyrocketed, mm-hmm. and the cost of living has gone up. The cost for bills. Have gone up. Energy bills have has gone up. Everything has gone up, and instead of you know, you know, look at the minimum wage is still where it is. Maybe it's gone up a little bit from what it was before, but it's not nearly enough to actually put somebody put somebody on you know, or, or, you know on in comfortable shoes, and it's difficult for for people who are on the bottom spectrum to actually you know live up to the standard which they maybe were used to couple of maybe a decade ago or two decades ago now talking about covid-19 and obviously covid-19 had a huge impact when it comes to uh when it comes to the crisis that we are facing right now financial crisis that we're facing recent world bank data highlights the the urgent need to combat poverty and some statistics will give for you as well in 2020 the covid-19 crisis um reversed decades of progress pushing an additional 70 million people in, in, into extreme poverty, raising the global rate to 9.3%. Now, the pandemic disproportionately affected the, the poorest. Obviously, that was going to be the case. Because, uh, you know, it, because there were lockdowns, because there were um, social distancing and all of the these things in place, people weren't going out. People, you know, pe- you know people who were becoming redundant, people were being furloughed. And people were becoming jobless. Obviously, it was going to affect those people who, who you know, who, the working class. And you know, they, 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 with that, their, their income losses was actually um, doubled that of the wealthiest, caused global inequality to rise for the first time in years. So what happened was was that the people who are the working class, they suffered the most. The poor people, they got even poorer. The rich people got even richer. And that's exactly what happened. Now, as of <coughs> as of 19, uh, as of November 2022, um, you know, with rising food and energy, energy prices actually hindered 
some of the process as well. It was recovering, but because of the energy bills, you know, rocket skyrocketing as well, they also it made a a, a hindered the progress. Alarmingly, up to six hundred and eighty-five million people could not, uh, you know, could, could still be in extreme poverty by the by the end of uh, you know by the end of uh, were were well, by the end of last year, moving us further from twenty, you know, the, the goal which was to uh, extreme uh, end extreme poverty by twenty thirty. So basically, in in at the end of this decade, the government's plan was to end all sorts of uh, extreme forms of poverty. But because of the energy bills, because of um, joblessness, poverty rising in different places, we, you know, that goal seems a little bit a little bit difficult to achieve. Now, many older adults left their jobs due to due to the pandemic, included job losses. And health risks as well, with 48% of those who are aged 50 to 70 experiencing relatively, um, you know, high rates of poverty when they retired in 2020 and 2021. Now, these retirees reduced their weekly food spending by £60 on average, more than in previous years. And uh, older people who stopped working were less likely to receive pensions, with half lacking private or state pensions in 2020 and 2021, compared to 43% the the previous year. Now, the UK's weak, employ, uh, weak employment recovery has made it an international outlet, outlier for, you know, leading to uh, inflationary pr- uh, pressures and higher s- starting pay to fill <coughs> job va- vacancies. Now, some older workers may return to the workforce, but this obviously depends on the opportunities as well. If there's no opportunities, then obviously how are they going to find work as well? Like we are talking about a lot of people were furloughed, a lot of people had to were forced to to, to quit their jobs. The NHS was uh, you know, a major factor in this as well. It, it took a major blow in this because a lot of the nurses, a lot of the, the staff, um not just you know, not just the nurses and the doctors, but even the cleaning staff and other people as well who are working, you know, in the NHS, different hospitals, different clinics, different, you know, uh, general practitioners, um, different places where the NHS is actually mm. running. They were told to, you know, the, you know, because they weren't getting paid, they couldn't get paid. They were told to quit their jobs or find jobs elsewhere. Or because Brexit was also included in this, they were told to go back to the country where they came from because simply they weren't going to be permitted to live here anymore so it was a double a double whammy sort of it was it wasn't just it wasn't i mean yes covid did have a huge impact in regards to this as well but if it's specifically talking about here in the uk then uh brexit was a huge major had a had a major role to play in this as well so a lot of these things are actually interconnected yeah if, we, right. if we talk about that <clears throat> I think those are just some of the stats um, between, uh, like within the UK, right? Um, yeah. And how COVID has impacted. Uh, just looking at the global poverty statistics, um, and this is according to the local government association, over 736 million people worldwide, they live below the World Bank's $1.90 per day poverty line. Mm. 
736 yeah. million. Yeah. That is a stra- staggering number, yeah. isn't it? It is. It is. And in the US, a family of four poverty threshold is approximately $26,000 annually. I mean, that isn't a high number at all either. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's dollars as well. I yeah. Mean, and the global poverty increased by 150 million in 2020 to 21, ending a 20-year decline. The COVID-19 pandemic, like we mentioned before, is set to delay poverty reduction in 70 developing nations by three to 10 years, mm. where we were set to achieve, uh, remove the extreme poverty by 2030. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, that's going to be that's... delayed because of the pandemic. <clears throat> and also child poverty constitutes half of global poverty, uh, poverty affecting one in five children. Um, and most extreme poverty, 84%, is in, in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia they're suffering um, with with poverty the most um, worldwide. Rural areas have three times higher poverty rates than urban cities. Um, another statistics, one in 27 children dies before the age of five due to extreme poverty-related issues. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's, that's worrying and sad. And it because, is. you know, if you look at our responsibility, our responsibility as human beings is to help humanity. It's to help those that are suffering and to be part of um, how we can become a source of their goodness, their well-being. Mm. And just, you know, because it's it's a command of our religion, not only to fulfill the rights of God Almighty, but to fulfill the rights of the creation of uh, God Almighty. And, you know, when you, when you see these um, videos, images of uh, these children, and they're wearing bare minimal mm, clothes. Yeah. And they've now got nourished no, as well, yeah. Yeah. So we feel the suffering. We feel how can we um, help these children? How we how can we uh, let's say provide for them? Um, so we should be doing our own bit, but then at the end of the day, it should be a collective mm. effort, a global effort um, by institutes, governments, and these organisations. Mm. I think maybe that's how we can uh, eliminate and Absolutely. alleviate poverty. We'll talk. <coughs> we'll hold that thought as well because we're going to come back to that and talk about how we can, you know, you know, alleviate their pain as well. But uh, let's let's speak to our next guest, who's on the line with us, Rachel Waters, who's uh, from End Child Poverty Coalition coordinator, and uh, which is you know a group of a hundred different charities ranging from small grassroots organisations to large international charities as well, trade unions and religious organisations who have come together in a united aim to end child poverty uh, in the UK uh, by tackling the root causes. Um, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Um, just to begin with, can you tell us, tell our listeners about uh, about the mission and goals of the End Poverty and Child Poverty and, uh, and some of the work that you guys do to combat child poverty here in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you just mentioned there, we are a group of a hundred different organizations and they're large charities and then smaller grassroots organizations so maybe an individual food bank or an individual baby bank all of whom are working on the issues that are associated with child poverty in the uk and by coming together as a group we can take messages to government and speak to mps to try and Sort of tackle the the causes of this poverty that we're seeing um, amongst families across the whole of the UK. Mm-hmm. Now, poverty is, is is a complex issue with uh, with various you know different factors coming into play. In in your opinion, 
what are the primary causes of child poverty and, uh, and do you believe that they can actually be eliminated once and for all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. child poverty is a big issue in the UK. So from the government's own stats, we know that there's 4.2 million children who are living in child poverty across the UK. So obviously this is an issue that's impacting lots of families up and down the country. And when we talk about the root causes, I suppose what we mean is the the money that's coming into a family to be able to afford the the essentials for children. So you either get your money through work or through benefit payments or a combination of both. But it's either that work isn't paying enough for you to be able to afford enough for your children or that you're not getting enough through benefit payments in order to meet the needs of your children. So when we talk about the root causes, that's really what we mean is sort of how much money a, a family is getting. Mm-hmm. And so when you sort of break down poverty like that, I think it is it sort of becomes a bit easier to see, I suppose, how you could go about making a change and how you could make sure that families are able to afford enough. And, mm. and really, one of the main issues is to look at the, the benefit system and how much money families are getting. And one of the big campaigns that we work on as the End Child Poverty Coalition is to call for an end to something called the two-child limit to benefit payment. And that's where families who claim universal credit are only receiving money for the first two of their children and not the third or more, which means that then they're not able to afford anything for the third or more child that they have. Um, And it's just a policy that is pushing families into into poverty. And we know that if it was scrapped, 250,000 children would automatically be lifted out of poverty. So it's Mm. a really obvious solution to kind of break down how we look at poverty and how we can sort of lift families out of this situation. Mm-hmm. Mitchell, you mentioned um, about uh, the universal credit as well. Wasn't hasn't that been been changed though? Before you know, it was as you know, if you had three children, more than two children, if you had three or four, then you would receive uh, help and support for that. But then it got scrapped, or you know, only only to two. So yeah, that's yeah. right. So if you have older children, you wouldn't be subject to the policy. But if you are claiming at the moment and then you were to have um, children now or you have younger children, mm. then you are subject to the policy. And, and obviously, if you have young children, then you have all sorts of other associated costs like childcare, for example, yeah. um, that it's obviously really hard to meet those costs because childcare is just so expensive. Um the policy also doesn't make any kind of exception. So if you were to have like a disabled child, for example, and we obviously know that if you Mm. had a child with a disability that they potentially would need a lot more extra care and sort of resource, you don't don't get money even if your child is disabled. So it's a policy that is, as I said, pushing families into poverty. Mm. Do you think that the, do you think that the government is actually looking into this or has anything in plan um, to actually, you know, address this issue and actually do something about the issue as well. Especially, you, you mentioned uh, those, you know, parents with young children, and especially mm. those with disabled children as well. Obviously, you know, the, the, the cost of living has gone up so much, and it's difficult to actually cater for 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 a child which you know, you know, which is maybe mm. disabled as well. Is is there anything that the government is doing to 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 tackle this? So, sadly, not really. 
you know, whether it's the government that's in power at the moment or or the, the parties that are standing for election, we need to see a real commitment to addressing child poverty. Yeah. And first and foremost, that means, you know, having a strategy to reduce the number of children who are living in poverty. And we we know that, you know, scrapping the two child limit is a very easy thing to do, but it takes concerted effort across government to look at things like education, housing, work, in order to understand sort of how to reduce child poverty in all of those areas. And if you have a cross-government sort of um, plan for how to reduce child poverty, then we know that that would go a really long way to helping address these issues. But Mm. unfortunately, at the moment, the government has a duty to report the number of children who are living in poverty each year. So we get these stats every year of you know millions of children who are living in poverty Mm. but they have no duty to be seen to be reducing that number and as we've seen it increases so you know it's it's something that really needs to be tackled and it needs government effort and that's why we exist as a coalition to continue to push government to make sure that they they remember that children need extra support and families with children need extra support in order to make sure that children um, receive the essentials that they need from their family. You know, you, you're talking about, just on the topic of uh, of, of children as well, before, um, you know, a couple of decades ago maybe, um, children did used to receive uh, milk in, in primary mm. schools as well uh, during, you know, n- during, the, during the school hours. But then they obviously it got it got stopped as well. Do you think these are some things that can actually be reintroduced as well? Obviously, with the, it can you know it can actually help um, those children that are maybe going through poverty or maybe malnourished yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point. So one of the campaigns that we really support is the idea of having a universal free school meal for all mm. children, be they primary or secondary. But at the moment, the real push is around trying to get free school meals for all primary school children and obviously that really helps children it means that they aren't um, hungry during school they're able to concentrate but it helps parents because parents don't have to then provide a packed lunch which costs money so it's putting money back in the in the family and making sure that you know the children are fed but there is a little bit of extra money that that family has as well and I work with young people who have had free school meals and they talk about, you know, the shame and stigma. If, if there's only free school meals given out to people who are sort of seen to be the poorest, mm. then, you, you know, that they're singled out. People know who they are. They can only afford a certain amount of food. So it's obvious who those children are. Yeah. Whereas if we make that universal, the then shame and yeah. stigma just disappears. Absolutely. And there is government will to do it, you know, that we're seeing it in wales and scotland it's just not in england although in london um children will be getting a free school meal for for this academic year Mm. and we hope that it shows that you know that this is really needed and that the government take that on as a policy for for all children across the uk yeah rachel you mentioned um, that the number um of uh, people or children in poverty it seems to be uh, growing and um the government's you try to push the governments to how they can eliminate poverty mm. within the UK. How successful are you and are the governments paying any heed to what you're, uh, how you're pushing them? Mm, good question. So during the um, COVID-19 um, and the subsequent cost of living crisis, uh, 
you, you might remember that there was something called the um, £20 uplift to universal credit. So mm-hmm. families who mm-hmm. received universal credit got £20. Sorry, Rachel. Um, I think we just lost connection. We can't seem to hear you. Um, hopefully we can bring you back. You were reported as living in poverty went down. It went from 4.3 million down to 3.9 million. And obviously 3.9 million is still lots of children. But it shows that when you put money into the benefit system, almost automatically you see a reduction in child poverty. Yep. And so I think we can use evidence like that to point to the fact that it's important that child poverty is addressed. And when you are putting money into the benefit system, then the impact that you can have is really quite, yeah, quite strong and you can see the impact quite quickly. Um, I think the the strength of having 100 members who are all calling for the same thing and whenever we meet with MPs, you know, we're all saying the same thing, that child poverty isn't inevitable, means that MPs do listen to us and we are um, gaining traction. And you can sort of see in um, what's happening now in the run up to the election, you know, child poverty is an issue that's really on the agenda for all parties to tackle. Mm. Uh, But we still have a long way to go. You know, we still have a long way to convince parties of what needs to happen in order to to really tackle child poverty and make sure that, you know, no family has to experience um, a situation where they you know, can't afford shoes for their children or they can't afford the petrol cost to get their child to school, which is something that we're hearing at the mm. moment it, uh, quite a lot of. Mm. Yeah. Rachel, you know, earlier in the show, we spoke about COVID-19 and, and its impact um, within the UK. Mm. Specifically talking about your organisation, what measures have you taken to address the, this issue? So for us, like I was saying, COVID-19 was such a obviously really awful time for families with children and especially families poorer families and we saw all sorts of things like you know children being um, excluded from their learning because they might not have access to a computer um and all of a sudden as well we, we we hear that teachers are you know seeing into people's houses and really seeing the what what families were facing with regards to you know how much furniture they had or um what was available to those children in order to learn um but again at the same time because we also saw this drop in child poverty it was a really it was a time when we could really show how important it was to invest in the benefit system and how important it is to make sure that yeah children are considered within all decisions that um that MPs are making so i would say that we're still very much reeling from covid-19 and really in terms of poverty you know the cost of living crisis is having a huge impact on lower income families across the whole of the UK. And it's something that we're really aware of and constantly lobbying for. So, you know, coming into winter again, um, families not being able to afford gas and electricity, not being able to afford to feed their children or give them a hot meal is something that we're really aware of. And obviously we're going to be really highlighting to MPs going forward. Yeah, you're right. And I think it's a continuous, united effort um, in Mm. order to deal with this. Just lastly, I just want to get your perspective on whether poverty can ever be completely eradicated. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think that when you are working with a big system, um, like a, a government benefit system, for example, there is 
there is always going to be a situation where somebody maybe has an emergency situation and cannot access funds quickly enough um, in order to cover all of their needs. So there may be a time when there will be people who sort of dip in and out of poverty in order because the system sort of like isn't quick enough to keep up with their lives. But the idea that, you know, families living in poverty and then they have children who also live in poverty, like that to me is definitely something that can be eradicated. Like we shouldn't have intergenerational poverty. We shouldn't be experiencing situations where um, poorer families are having children who are also growing up in poverty. And there are, we know, for example, that there are certain um, different groups of people who are much more likely to experience poverty. So it's, it's easy to sort of target interventions at groups that we know might be likely to experience child poverty. So, for example, 44% of children in lone parent families, so where there's only one parent, um, are more likely to be in poverty after the cost of housing is taken on board. And that compares with just 25% of children when there are two parents. So, you know, the government could target intervention specifically at lone parents, for example, to really look at child poverty or where somebody is disabled, as we talked about before. If there's a disabled child, we, we know that we should be helping those families more. And if government sort of looked at it in a holistic way like that I do think that poverty could be significantly reduced potentially never completely eradicated because there will always be one or two situations you know where somebody is falling into poverty but we shouldn't be seeing you know lifelong poverty within families in the way that we do at the moment. Thank you very much Rachel Waters I think um, our listeners must have benefited greatly um, from your knowledge and from your expertise. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. So that, <clears throat> both of our callers, both of our guests, um, uh, you know, spoke uh, you know, very eloquently about, uh, you know, the work that they're doing and how we can alleviate the pain of those people who are going through poverty as well and some practical things that we can actually, uh, that we we can introduce or we should introduce, the government should introduce um, to, to, to eradicate poverty as well because there are people who are genuinely struggling um, you know whether it's taking the children to school whether it's feeding the children themselves the children whether it's clothing uh, the children um, there's a lot of there's a lot of you know different aspects to poverty so as well. you know the last question that I presented to our guest yeah. um, what is her perspective whether poverty can be completely eradicated, eradicated and she, yeah. can, she said that um, maybe not completely, because there's always going to be someone going in and out of yeah. um, poverty. What What do you think? Do you think uh, poverty can be completely is, eradicated? The thing about poverty, we spoke about this before as well, is that obviously, where if you're living in a particular place, that you know the 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 government who is governing you and the citizens, all of its citizens, they have a responsibility. <laughs> if we talk about it from an Islamic perspective, then. Um, at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, you know, we there was, you know, the the the, the institution of zakat. You know, we were yeah. talking about zakat as well, and with zakat, it alleviated all those people who were living in poverty. So yes, just poverty, leading on to, from that, right? Yeah. Um, just uh, a quote from uh, the caliph, the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza mm. Masrur Ahmed, uh, may Allah be his helper. Yes. He mentioned during one of his address that if the teachings of Islam are followed, hmm. that can 
solve all the world problems. Exactly. So I think yes. Yeah. Poverty. Exactly. Same. Yeah. Hunger. Um, all the problems that we're having, all the sufferings that's going on. I think it, they, th- those can be fixed and cured if we, if the teachings of Islam are followed properly. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I completely agree with you one hundred percent because if the you know if if anyone who who is need is in need of funds, right? Whether they whether they are hungry, whether they don't they don't have clothes, whether they don't have you know a roof on top of their head, whatever problems that they're going through, if they you know if they present that to you know to the government or the, to the authority, and the authority you know provides them with the with the support, with the aid, with the funding, everything, then then you know there won't be anyone who would be living in poverty, and when there's less poverty or when there's no poverty, that is when the crime rate goes down as well, because What's the need to actually go out there and steal food if you've got if your fridge is full at home if your cupboards are full if you've got clothes to wear you've got summer clothes you've got winter clothes all of these things you know if you're if you're living in a in a you know in a good and a nice comfortable environment and you're comfortable at home as well you have access to education you have job opportunities you you know you know all of the things are met the the crime rate will definitely go down yeah so you're just picking up I know we're coming towards the end of the hour. <laughs> Uh, I saw a, yes. a news post uh, yesterday or so that NASA's discovered a asteroid um, which consists of uh, gold and uh, diamond and silver. Right. And it, if it is um, discovered properly and if it's brought to the world, yeah. everyone in the world can become a millionaire and billionaires. That's how massive it is. <laughs> but NASA's is. basically currently they're going to use it for um, their scientific purposes. Mm. But that's what that asteroid contains and right. if it can be used for the well-being of human beings and yeah. i think we would soon to be rich <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's there some wishful thinking there as well but uh, <coughs> the thing is is that obviously um we need to put everything before god isn't it and uh, you know as as being religious and being being muslims especially need to attribute everything to to God Almighty, wherever He gives us, and uh, you know we need to be thankful for that as well. Because if we are thankful, then Allah the Almighty will give us even more so, as well abundantly. Um, I mean, you know, just like you said, we're coming towards the coming towards the hour. The news is looming as well, and uh, you know this is uh, you know the, I mean, we, with that we can actually conclude for the p- first part of the show. Um, it's, it's it is interesting when we talk about poverty, and I think we will talk about we've talked about this in the past. And I think we'll talk about this in the future as well because it's an ongoing thing, and uh, you know we, next time we'll talk a little bit more uh, from a dis- from a different aspect as well. But join us after the news. We will go into our next topic about life skills. Very interesting. So see you after that. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. We're talking about life skills here uh, in this part uh, of the show. Just to start off with, let me let me give you a stat, right? Now, according to... SWN Media Group, 81% of recent college graduates 
wish that they were taught more life skills before graduation. That's basically nearly everyone, isn't it? Eighty-one percent. <laughs> more life skills, isn't it? <laughs> yes. If you want to, you would you would want to have learnt more life skills. Whether you know, it could be simple things, <clears throat> such as you know, CPR, first aid, how to put a bandage on, you know, sim- simple, simple things as well. Survival skills. It could be literally anything. Um, you're saying you, I'm saying me too as well because I, I would want to have more. Include me in that. 81%. Include me in that. Literally, include me in that. Eighty-one percent. Now, survival skills, a subset of uh, essential life skills, are actually paramount. They're very important. They're vital in uh, ensuring one's safety and resilience in challenging situations, such as, you know, even even swimming is a life skill. If you know how to swim, you could save literally someone's life. If you can't swim, then obviously you would need saving. Knowing how maybe. to swim, you can sa- save your own life as well at times, <laughs> oh, right? Yeah, of course, of course, <laughs> of course. But, uh, that's you know, that's the thing. It's a simple skill. Um, yeah, I mean, it might not be simple for some, but it's a it's a skill which you know which uh, which can come in very very handy. Now, these skills actually can encompass a range of different abilities, from knowing how to build a fire, uh, you know, in a campfire in the woods, maybe, um, and, and find clean water. Um, when it comes to first aid, when it comes to self defense, um, navigating in the wilderness, you know, even looking at a compass um, and knowing which direction to go if you've got a map and a compass knowing how you know which way is north and which way we have to go that's a basic i mean that's a life skill as well so there are different skills which can you know a range of different abilities and uh, uh and to know as you know more and more of these can actually become uh you know you know at the end it can actually save someone's life it can save your own life it can save other people's lives as well now, beyond the practical aspect, these skills cultivate a mindset of uh, resourcefulness, adaptability, self-reliance, um, instilling a sense of confidence that can make all the difference when facing unexpected uh, and unexpected uh, adverse adversity um, at times of difficulty. Uh, if you know how to do something, you, you know, just like I said, it can save it can save some, someone's life definitely <clears throat> and just bringing the islamic point of view yeah. um in the holy quran allah the almighty states that and furnish yourselves with necessary provisions and surely the best provision is righteousness <clears throat> and fear me alone o men of understanding that's from chapter 2 verse 198 and you know this verse highlights um the importance of being prepared with the uh, provisions but they also emphasize, along with uh, having provisions and being prepared with it, that the best provision one can have is piety and righteousness. Mm. Because, of course, if you are pious and you are righteous, then you would um, be a source of a beneficial for others. Yeah. Uh, you would, of Absolutely. course, help them in, in the time of need. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam, peace be upon him, has said that, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. So mm. where you... Mm place your trust in the one um, and only God Almighty, you should also cater for the the, the needs that you should fulfill. And um, having provisions at the time of need um, is also essential. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. (coughs) Absolutely. I mean, it just goes to show that Islam is a a practical religion. It doesn't just, you know, say, uh, believe in Allah and all of your troubles and all of your worries will go Literally, away. Obviously, yeah. that is a major part of it, of course. But Islam says that first, you know, you do the practical thing as well, which is, you know, tie your camel, do your bit as well. If you go 
um, for an exam, right? And you say, and you say, oh, you know, what? I'm just going to pray, and I'm just going to pray for it, and uh, just hope and pray. Yeah, that not revise, not revise. Literally, don't do anything. Don't do any preparation. You can't expect to pass the pass the exam. Obviously, you need to do your studying first. You need to go through that, you know, that whole process, um, and you know, do your revision, do your coursework, do whatever you need to do, and of course, pray on top of that. That is when Allah the Almighty will assist you. So it's the same when it comes to medicine, right? Now, medicine. Some people think that you know, I'm just going to pray and everything will be fine. Don't take any medicine, but that's not the case. Islam teaches us to first, you know, take the medicine, but don't believe in the medicine as such. Believe that Allah the Almighty will put a cure in that medicine. And then yeah, you will, you know, right. you can get better results. These are some things that we need to that we need to look into. Now, um, when it comes to when it comes to uh, you know learning these different skills as well, Allah the Almighty has actually told us a very compact but 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 quite quite versatile prayer in the Holy Quran, which uh, literally. In Arabic, it's you know it's just four or five words. Rabbi zidni ilma. It's three, literally three words, and that means, oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Now, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, used to pray in this way as well. This, this prayer has been mentioned in the Holy Quran, taught to us by Allah the Almighty. It's our duty as well to learn as many skills as possible, as well. In fact, the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that you know one should actually learn. Different life skills, such as swimming, such as hunting, horse, uh, riding. horse riding as well. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. So he, he, you know, he's literally told us that you know if we learn these skills, you know, it's, it, it will be for our benefit uh, as well. So these are some things that we want to talk about, and uh, we'll, we, you know, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll delve more into you know some more detail in regards to that as well. But let's speak to our our first guest for this part of the show, Emma Hammett, um, and. Um, who is the founder of multi award-winning First Aid for Life and OnlineFirstAid.com, providing practical and online first aid courses for groups and individuals as well. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. To to begin with, for the benefit of our listeners, what are some common um, situations in which you know youngsters, children, adolescents might actually? Need to use in their, you know, in, in their first aid skills. And what, why is it sort of important for them to actually learn this at a young age, and then develop on that and grow grow from that? Well, young people are risk takers, like it or not, and uh, the the risk part of their brain, um, particularly in young men, I'm afraid to say, doesn't actually develop until they're about 25. Hmm. So you have young people who want to be independent who are out there um, in groups and things can happen. So it's about being able to help themselves and to help others um, should something happen. There's Mm. been all sorts of research um, done and, you know, the majority of young people, um, until very recently, because it's only in the last couple of years that it's become part of the school curriculum, and that is only one hour a year, which isn't a huge amount. One hour a year. Okay. There's you know, all sorts of things can can happen. Um, you know, their friends can have a can can fall. They can have an asthma attack. They can have an anaphylactic reaction. The, they might have a seizure. Um, they might find somebody you know around them that is collapsed. Um, you know, and the the confidence 
that it will give them to know what to do mm. and to be able to help is huge. And also, it's quite reassuring for their parents. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just talking about um, these these basic skills as well. Um, what are some of the key areas covered in first aid courses for, for children? And uh, why is CPR considered a crucial uh, life skill for, for, for children to learn as well? Well, children can end up, um, can, can suffer from sudden cardiac arrest. Um, that's not the main reason why they are teaching this in schools. The main reason um, is following on from studies in Denmark and Scandinavia, where they found that if they started teaching first aid and CPR skills in schools, mm. they ended up with a whole cohort of people that were then able to help in a life, um, in a you know, in a, in a critical situation, yeah, yeah. and consequently, it has led to the whole population um, with, with with a much better survival rate, because mm-hmm. prompt CPR saves lives. Yeah. And if you haven't got someone who knows what to do close to you within that first vital um, time, then you know, they're not going to be able to to save someone's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, with these skills, you, you literally can save someone's uh, life as well. Um, in in America, they have these sort of, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts where they sort of go out there and teach different skills as well. Are there any specialized first aid skills that children can acquire for specific situations here? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. We teach that all the time. Hmm. I mean, if people are doing their Duke of Edinburgh awards, um, we've got an online course that they can do for their skill section and they can spread it out over that um, their three-month period that they need to be doing it on a weekly basis. Mm. We teach in schools. Um, you know, knowing how to help if somebody's bleeding is critically important. What to do in those first vital seconds if somebody's burnt, yeah. um, burn themselves. I mean, we've got, you know, bonfire night coming up. Um, you know, sadly, you know, there will be um, children who who will be burned on firework night? Mm. It happens every year, yeah. and and everybody should know what to do, yeah. because you know it burns burns scar, and they have carry a lifelong um, injury. And Emma, how can online first aid courses complement practical training for children and teenagers? They are superb. I mean, the children are, are used to tra- to learning things online. And if they do it as a blended approach, then it can work very well indeed. So uh, a blended approach um, where they can learn the online skills, it's videos, step-by-step directions, test yourself sections. It can work all the way way through. Um, apologies, I've got calls coming through on my phone. I don't know if you can hear them. No, no, apologies. We, we, we <laughs> carry on. Um, so so the, we're able to offer online courses Zoom courses um, and practical training, and they all have benefits. So, if you're learning by video, by um, um, step-by-step directions with test yourself sections, um, then they can go through. They can learn all the vital skills. Uh, they can stop and start as often as they like, and they can revisit it. So, it works, and it works really well. Yeah, you know, you just mentioned a few uh, of uh, training you provide. Um, do you have like if our listeners want to go back and maybe um, go and look at your website and maybe get involved uh, they get their children involved in in Mm -hmm. such uh, training how can they do so yes we've got free resources on there as well 
So we've got onlinefirstaid.com. That's where all the online courses are, right. are can be found. And firstaidforlife.org.uk. And it explains exactly the sort of skills that, that um, teenagers in particular can, can learn. It, it takes you through. The blog is really helpful in order to, to just give you first aid advice and support. Uh, and we've also got a very busy um, YouTube channel. Right. And uh, what is the YouTube channel? It's First Aid for Life. First Aid for Life. Perfect. And uh, Emma, just lastly, um, how can parents support and reinforce first aid skills at home specifically? YouTube videos? Well, one, uh, yeah, they can watch together. They can learn together. But also a really nice thing to do is to book a bespoke first aid course at home where we come and teach the whole family and the extended family and we tailor it to your needs um, mm. and it's not expensive <laughs> you will all learn these skills and then you'll all be able to to keep each other safe so whether you're looking after you know elderly grandparents at home or the new baby that's arrived everybody will have those critical skills and be that much more confident um, being able to help Absolutely, absolutely, Emma. Thank you so much for for sharing that um, with us as well, with our listeners. I'm sure definitely uh, must have benefited from that as well. Thank you once again, and have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Have a lovely evening. Bye. Bye bye. That was Emma Hammett and uh, telling us, uh, you know, a little bit more about uh, you know different life skills that you know one can one can learn, especially youngsters as well, young children, um, which can definitely practically save someone's uh, save someone's life now um before we actually talk about uh you know the, the islamic perspective in regards to you know helping those people out helping the people who are in need and also learning for yourself so you can help other people out as well and how important that is we'll talk about a little bit more about that later on as well but uh, let's speak to our next guest ellie turner who's a business developer uh, development executive at busy bees education and training with over 10 years experience in the healthcare industry. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show, Ellie. Hello. Thank you. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, we're doing great here in the studio. Yourself? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to come on here and share a little bit more insight into first aid. Absolutely. I think it's sometimes a topic that people can maybe put to the back of their heads and hope that they never find themselves in a situation where mm. you know they need to perform CPR or, or give back blows but unfortunately we just don't know when this is going to happen and all we can do is be prepared so it's it's great to share a bit of insight into that yeah. and raise it's great it's great to have you on board as well um, just like you just like you mentioned you, you literally don't know when the time's going to come and you literally need to help someone there and then before it's too late um, talking about work specifically, what type, what types of first aid training are specifically required for employees in different workplaces as well? And and obviously, if they learn a, a if they learn a first aid skill or they go through that training, how often should they refresh their training as well? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. So what I would say for anyone booking a first aid course is just ensure that the course is nationally accredited make sure it's hse approved um there are a lot of variables it's all dependent on the amount of employees that someone has uh, more information can be found on that on hsc.gov.uk mm. and there is a tab on employers and legal duties so if anybody is unsure about the kind of first aid they need to offer to their employees all the information is on there 
Um, but just us as a company, our most popular courses, I would say, are the paediatric first aid at work, the generalised first aid at work, which is a course that I would recommend everybody to do. Um, and at least if not everyone can do it within the business, at least have one person who has done this course. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the emergency first aid at course sorry first aid at work course which Mm. is just six hours long it's the minimum requirement it will teach you the basic skills um and it's all nationally accredited all of these courses are valid for three years um so you will get a certificate you will get a first aid qualification um and you will just have to renew it every three years Mm -hmm. so after after three years is it just a matter of renewing it or do you have to go through that that sort of training again or yeah, so you do have to go through the training again. Um, so they are quite in-depth courses. Mm. The reason we put people through the training again is because they are quite in-depth. There is a lot to know. There's a lot to remember. So we like to go through the whole thing again. And something else I would just like to mention as a company, we do also offer mental health first aid. Mm, I right. think up until recently, it's been quite a taboo topic. And now yeah. it is really widely spoken about which is amazing you know we all from time to time suffer with our our mental health just like physical health and this course will enable people to um, understand it a little bit better and signpost people in the right direction if they are struggling mentally Mm -hmm. I mean I mean that is absolutely wonderful to hear as well I mean we we need to understand that you know it's not just about physical pains or physical um, problems as well that someone might actually might actually receive but the mental health needs to be, uh, you know, on on the same level as well. Um, how does first aid play a crucial role in mitigating the the impact of workplace uh, accidents or maybe injuries or illnesses before actually, you know, we call the ambulance or pref- get medical attention, get medical help before that even arrives? Yeah, sure. So good question. Um, I think it's important to bear in mind that, that by law, companies must have first aid within their business. Mm. Um, if you are found to not comply, you can, you know, essentially be prosecuted or fined quite heavily. Right. But, you know, generally in regard to the question you've asked, I think each company, they have a duty of care to their customers, to their employees, if it's a healthcare setting to their patients. And first aid really can prevent minor injuries from becoming major ones. And, you know, just to run through a couple of statistics, because I think they are very powerful and it does really put things into perspective. Only 5% of adults in the UK would feel comfortable and knowledgeable and willing to help someone who is bleeding heavily Mm. or is unresponsive. And I don't know what you think, but I think that is a really scary statistic um, to think that only 5% of people would actually feel comfortable doing that. Mm. And also 80% of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests actually happen at home or in the workplace so you know i think it's really important to say it can be a little bit daunting when it comes to thinking about first aid but no one is expecting you to be a doctor Mm. no one you know we're not saying that a first aid course is adequate to go into medical school Mm. essentially to put it into the most simplistic form being a first aid actually enables you to hold the fort until a paramedic ambulances actually arrive to the scene and that can drastically improve prognosis for the person that's requiring medical attention absolutely absolutely i mean just leading on from that as well um can you give us give us uh, give our listeners some, some some examples or scenarios some case studies as well may where prompt first aid response has actually reduced recovery time for for employees and actually made a positive effect on uh, the work the workplace productivity 
Absolutely. I think this is really a bittersweet topic for us as a company because, you know, our trainers, when we teach first aid, they they put their heart and soul into it. You know, it really is their expertise. And we don't like to hear that someone has had to, you know, complete CPR or address someone who's having a medical emergency. But equally, when we do hear that, it's amazing to hear that actually they felt really confident and they were able to address the situation. So, um, in, in order of answering your question, we actually had um, one of our nursery branches. Yeah. They suffered a child choking on a small piece of apple. Oh. Um, they were just having some dessert after their lunch, and the first aider was able to react really quickly mm. with the skill set that she'd learned. She administered three back blows, which dislodged the apple and essentially saved the child's life. And one of the most important factors is she was actually able to keep calm, collected, um, which prevented the child from going into panic mode. Mm. And, you know, that's really important. And it's so easy for me to sit here and say, if you are dealing with a medical emergency, you've got to keep, you know, cool as a cucumber. Mm. Um, But it really is important because sometimes when we go into panic, we go into fight and flight mode and we can think a little bit differently. So. Yeah, it was so great that she was able to remain remain calm in that situation. And then just another example, we actually received a really in-depth thank you email from a client who had attended one of our first aid courses. Um, he was actually with his granddad, and sadly his granddad suffered a heart attack, mm. um, and he was able to perform CPR, and he mentioned in his email he actually had the, the first aider's voice in his head the whole time. Mm. Um, he said without this, he, he generally would not have known what to have done if he didn't go on the course. Once the paramedics arrived on the scene to take over, they actually said that without the CPR, the grandson performed, um, the granddad would not have survived. Wow. So that is just an, an incredible, powerful story for us to hear. That is that is absolutely incredible. That's amazing. And um, Ellie, are there specialised first aid training considerations for, you know, certain workplaces with unique hazards, um, you know, such as construction sites or laboratories? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some sites will require specialised training. It's always worth checking with the company that you're booking for that the course is going to be adequate for your business. It's all very dependent on risk assessments. You know, every occupation is different and some do require specialist training. But I would say 95 to 98% of people would qualify for the courses that we offer. If anyone is unsure, again, more information can be found on the hsc.gov.uk. That should tell you the exact first aid course you would need for your, your business or establishment. Great. And Ellie, finally, in what ways does first aid serve as a multi-purpose life skill that enhances not only safety, but also personal confidence and empowerment? Sure. So in in my opinion, first aid is just an invaluable life skill that everybody should have. And not only for workplace environments, but also for personal too. You know, God forbid a loved one were to suffer a medical emergency. We have to ask ourselves, would would we have the confidence? Would we have knowledge to act quickly and perform CPR, give back blows, administer an EpiPen, control bleeding? There are so many different variables that we could be faced against. Um so it's just so important we are prepared for that. I mean, it's always good to put yourself in the situation as if you were to have a medical emergency, what kind of you know treatment would you want? Because I know that I would, I would want someone to rush over and say, I'm a first aider, I'm here to help till the ambulance service arrives. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I generally think it's such an invaluable life skill that absolutely everyone should have. 
Great. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, Ellie Turner, and it was great to have you on our show. No problem. I would just like to say if anyone is looking for a first aid course, please, you know, do visit our website. We are very cost effective. We're aware there's a bit of a cost of living crisis and we are here to help. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, Ellie. It was a pleasure Thank having you, you so on our show today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you once again. Bye-bye. So uh, both of our guest, uh, guests so far <coughs> have spoken about, uh, spoken about uh, you know, life skills as well, practical life skills, and some, you know, the stories which she, which she mentioned, the incidents which she mentioned, were actually quite, one, you know, quite remarkable as well. And it's wonderful that the, you know, the, the people actually went through the training, and because of that, they saved... Uh, I mean, the grandson saved his grandfather's life, mm. and then the the other person saved the other the other kid's life as well for not choking on that piece of apple as well. So it was absolutely amazing. And you know, Shajil, to, uh, to hear that. Um, obviously, having a life skill, it's it's wonderful. You yeah. don't really know at what point you might need That's that the skill. Thing. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, and I think in everyone's life, there comes an instant, or multiple instances of such where yeah. you might need this certain skill. Literally. Yeah. Um, I'm, I I probably everyone in their life would have at least one or two instances uh, where they would need to. Hmm. Um, so, But also, um, apart from having this skill, unless you don't um, go through the practicality um, of an instance when it's actually happening and you need to provide your skills or first aid skills or so, yeah. um, that's a different scenario because at that time you need to be cool you and collective cool, and calm. Yeah. That's um, where the nerves come in as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So even if you do know how to perform a CPR or you do know how to um, do this, uh, follow these procedures, uh, but it can be different on the scenario. But of course, if you do the proper training, uh, you do learn how to stay calm, how to stay collective and actually carry out the training um, in, in real life scenarios. Absolutely. The, you know, um, couldn't agree more with uh, couldn't agree uh, with you more. Um Let's speak to our next guests who are on the line with us, Steve Fisher and Paul Nolan. Steve is a community risk officer and operational firefighter for Devon and Somerset Fire and Rescue Service. Paul is also an associate business safety officer for Devon and Somerset Fire and Rescue Service. Thank you so much for both of you uh, for uh, for joining us, Steve and Paul. No problem. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much for for being here with us. Um, Just to begin with, what are the most common causes of residential fires and how can they actually be prevented? I mean, you, can, you guys can decide who, who's going to answer. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so this is Steve. So, um, yeah, so what we find is cooking-related fires are one of the main causes. Now, particularly in the over 65 age group, it's, it's something that we see quite a lot. And it all centres around cooking in, in the use of the kitchen and mm. it's really to do with distractions so yeah. you know it's people putting things on the cook um and then leaving the room get off to do other jobs around the house um and then obviously forgetting to go back and and you know in time before things escalate out of control yeah yeah it's um you know, and one of the things we've been doing as a service is, is trying to sort of educate people and say, look, if you're going to be doing the cooking, to, to try and avoid that happening, the best thing really is for you to be able to stay in, stay in the actual room, you know, while you're doing the cooking and, and mm. don't leave. Yeah. But, you know, we understand that, you know, if things are cooking for quite some time, you do want to leave it, maybe to go to the toilet or answer the door. Um, you know, so what we recommend is, if, if you are going to leave, is to set yourself a timer. Yeah. Um, we did a bit of a project where we were we were visiting particularly people in that age group, the over sixty five, 
Um, and we were talking to them about their, their cooking habits, and we were actually giving them cooking timers them to use. Hmm. Um, just to try and encourage them to do that. You know, the thing is, these days with mobile phones, they've got mobile phones, they can set a time on that. You know, they can go off and they can do jobs around the house. Yeah. Off their phone or, or, you know, one of the types that we give them. Um, just yeah. remind them to go back. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just like you said, it's about, you know, if they get distracted and they don't stay in the, in the same room or they don't stay in the kitchen where something's actually being cooked, then that is, a, you know, a hazard as well. Now, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. It's those things, you know, nobody particularly wants to have to stay in the kitchen the whole time. There is yeah. other things going around Of the course, house. of course. It's really, really normal, but yeah, it's, it's just, you know, having that way to either remember to go back or to set that timer because it is easy. You know, and as as we age, we do get more forgetful. Um, mm. So uh, you know, it, it's a good idea if if people can do that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, just leading on from that as well, what are the main objectives of a fire risk assessment, and and how does that actually help and improve overall fire safety? Hello, this is Paul. Um, so, a fire mm. risk assessment really is more pertinent to um, a place of business rather than a, a residential uh, uh, property. Um, what I would say is um, it's very, very important to carry one out, especially if you've got residential accommodation above a business hmm. uh, or people are living above business in a flat. Uh, yeah. Fire assessment basically is now actually mandatory. If, you, if you're running a business, it is now mandatory hmm. um, to carry out a documented fire risk assessment. Um, that fire risk assessment should um, look at the property, what it's being used for, um, identify the risks of fire, who's at risk, um, and what you can do to mitigate and reduce that risk and keep those people safe. Hmm. Um, as I said, it's very, very important, especially where you've got a mixed-use property, where you've got commercial uh, business on, 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 say, a ground floor, sleeping accommodation above. It's very, very important to consider how those people um, living and sleeping above a business would be warned in the event of fire, mm. or, or consider you know, detection and fire warning, um, and, and, and then their escape route. How would they, how would they be able to escape safely mm. um, and get out without going through you know, a high-risk room such as a kitchen or something like that? So what I would suggest is anybody who's thinking, well, I haven't got a fire assessment, um, how do I do it? Um, I, I would urge people to look at their, their local fire and rescue services website. Um, there's a, a wealth of information on there. And, uh, and there's also normally um, templates you can use, um, sort of like checklists that you can go through to say, yes, okay, I've considered this at my property um, mm. and got, I've got detection. I've, I've considered the escape route. Um, uh, I've considered, you know, electrical safety, things like that. Um, but yeah, look at look at your local fire and rescue services website. There's a lot of information on there that will help. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Um, what are some of the most crucial home safety uh, measures that every household should actually have? They should implement. They should make sure that they, you know, whatever checks that they have, that they that they're up and running as well. I think you know it's a good idea, really. Very much like Paul was saying with the business information is to yeah. visit the your local fire and rescue service website because they all have safety pages on there and they will guide you through things you need to be looking for around your home. Um, 
And really, it comes down to making sure that you've got detection. So you need to know, mm. you need to have detection in your home to know that if there is a fire, you're going to be alerted. Yeah. And then once you're alerted, you need to make, make sure that you can get out. So it's really looking at detection and escape routes. Yeah. So it's very similar to that, you know, when we're talking about the, the fire risk assessment for businesses and, and it falls along the same line. So we want to make sure that people do have smoke alarms yeah. um, and that they test them and that they, and they are working. Um, and then also that they know what to do when that sounds. So if, you know, if everybody in bed in the middle of the night and the alarm signs that they know what they should be doing. Yeah. Um, and the, and the thing is, you know, obviously we want people to react to the smoke alarm and, and, and wake up everybody in the household. And the idea is that everybody, because you get an early warning with, with a smoke alarm, hmm. that, that, you know, that, that signs at the very early stages of a fire. So the idea is that, that wakes you up at those early stages. Yeah. And providing your escape routes are clear, and that's something that we want you to look at, yeah. is that, you, you know, yourself and all of your family can exit the house really easily. So the yeah. idea is you get everybody out of the house, you call the fire service, you stay outside and you let professional you know deal with that hmm. um you know they've got the training and you know the protective equipment to go in and deal with that safely what we don't want is people trying to tackle it themselves hmm. so you know the big things are check your local fire service look at their website um they they will all offer home, free home fire safety visits as well and that's something that we do in Devon and somerset where we will go around homes we will sit down with them we will talk through all the safety things they should be looking through you know things as you know their electricals the way they heat their homes going back to the cooking uh, related things as well hmm. we'll talk about that we will look at their smoke alarms we will check their smoke alarms we will replace them for the charge if they need replacing um we'll talk about carbon monoxide, and then we'll look at their escape so all fire services are the same sort of thing as that where they will visit you in your home and run through those things if you're not confident and incompetent to do it yourself. Yeah. Also, could, could you share some practical advice on creating a fire-safe environment at home, um, especially for especially for families with children? Yeah, definitely. So, have a routine where the the smoke alarms are checked, and you know, with children, they they've got really good memories, and this because yep. we like people to you know test their smoke alarms a minimum of once a month because it's all very well having them, but they don't work, they're not going to do the job. To do. Yeah, so with right. children, you can involve the children. They, you know, every you know every month we need to test the alarm, and they'll tend to remember. Um, so it's testing your alarms, yes. running through the escape plan with all of the household. And again, it's really good to involve the children with that. And you, you know, you can plan that on paper, and, and the children can write that out. So it's yeah. So it's the smoke alarm testing. It's the escape route, and then it's looking at the way that you you live in your home. So things like electricals. So. One of the big things we're seeing is incidents with lithium-ion batteries, mm. okay, and the charging of, of those those things. Now, people may think, well, I'm, 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 you know, I'm okay. I don't have lithium-ion batteries lying around my home. Um, but what people don't realise is all the different sort of devices that they're actually in. So pretty much these days, anything that you charge—mobile phones, tablets, you know, yep. laptops, radio-controlled uh, toys, scooters is a really big one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, electric bikes and scooters—they all have these lithium-ion batteries that are at risk when they're being charged. Um, you know, there is, there is a, a chance that they could malfunction it and start a fire. So, it's being really vigilant about when those things are being charged. So, never charge them when you're asleep or when you leave the home. Um, 
because you know if something happens you're not there to deal with it or you're you're trying to react from bed to deal with it from sleep you know which is a lot trickier um and it's about where they're being charged as well so what we don't want is those items being charged in escape routes so we, we've seen cases where you know people are, are in flats in, in these particularly the scooters and bikes are being charged in the corridors in the communal areas you know and that is the escape route for the whole you know the whole block yeah. um and it, you know and if they catch fire which they can uh, and and it's quite a, a rapid fire as well. You know, it's, it's, if anybody's ever seen any footage of, of these these you know these batteries going up on YouTube or anything like that, it's it's quite shocking. You know, it's it's good for people to see how aggressive they are. Um, so it's just thinking about yeah when and where those electrical things are being charged and making sure they're not being overcharged mm. and they've got the correct charges for them as well. Um, and you're looking for damage, any damage you know on the actual battery or the item. Again, be very wary. Yeah, there's some great advice there um, for our listeners. Um, also, you mentioned smoke detectors and fire alarms. Um, what role do smoke detectors and fire alarms play in fire safety? And you mentioned, um, and further question was, how often should they be tested and maintained? Yeah, so, you know, we touched on it a little bit then. So what we'll do is we'll talk about the domestic side then and then yeah. talk and talk to you about the, the systems that you need in, in the business premises. So we need to make sure that we've got working smoke alarms. So that is testing. So we like them to be tested on a minimum once a month. Right. We do say people, we try to promote once a week, okay, which may seem excessive, but then we know that people will forget. So if they got once a week in their head and they, and they forget, hopefully they're doing it, you know, once every two or three weeks yep. or um, once a month. So, And the thing is as well is to make sure the test is in the correct way. Some people will say, well, I can see the light flashing, so I know it works. That doesn't tell you it's going to make the noise you need it to make. So, yeah. you know, we want people to reach up. There is a test button on there, and that button does need to be pressed. Um, and if they've got interlinked alarms as well, and they're wired into their, into their mains electric, then you press one button, all the alarms will sound. Okay? So they need to make sure that when that button's been held, they go to the other levels of the button to make sure those alarms are sounding as well. I mean, that leads us on to the amount of alarms you're going to have. So we say at least one alarm on each level of your home. Yes. Okay, so you have one on the ground floor, one on the first floor, one on the, the second floor if you have one. And maybe if you have a particularly large property that you need one, you know, you need more than one alarm. Um, mm -hmm. It really depends on the layout. And that's why the home safety visits from the fire service work quite well, because we can advise you on that. Um, so while we're talking about alarms as well with testing, um, one of the other alarms that we, we like to talk to people about is carbon monoxide. Yes. Um, so if people aren't aware, carbon monoxide is a poisonous gas. And the way that ends up in our home is by um, a faulty appliance. So if you've got any fuel burning appliance in your home, so whether that's a, a gas cooker, a, a gas boiler, a log burner, an open fire, um, anything that's burning a fossil fuel has got potential if it malfunctions to release carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide gas into the home. And the main issue is, unlike... Um, unlike regular smoke from a from a from a fire, carbon monoxide gas is um, completely odourless, mm. um, and you can't see it. So you don't actually know it's there. So without one of these alarms, you're taking a lot of this stuff on without knowing you're actually, you know, you're breathing in until you start to feel the effects of it. Um, mm. So really, any of those type of appliances to have a carbon monoxide bomb in your home, and again, that needs to be tested and maintained as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say smoke alarms and fire detection is absolutely, absolutely crucial. Um, what I would say to all your listeners is have a look at your, your property or your premises 
and and just have a look at it and say, you know, is there anywhere within this premises where a fire could start and go undetected? If if the answer to that is yes, then I would say you need to consider installing detection in those areas. Yeah. Throughout, um, and certainly linked to residential station, so that the people that are living and sleeping above business get um, uh, adequate early warning. Um, but yeah, that, that and that forms part of your fire risk assessment as well. One of the questions you'll be asking is, you know, do I have an adequate means of warning everybody in the building of fire? Yeah. Um, that will only come from having detection you know, um, in the building and linked to each floor level um, so that staff, residents, customers, whoever, they all get early warning and that they can get out safely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve and Paul, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and speaking to us, to te- you know, telling us more, enlightening us and telling us the practical things that we need to be doing, ensuring us that, uh, you know, some things, uh, steps which needs to be uh, taken. Thank you so much, Steve and Paul. Have no a lovely problem. day. Cheerio. Thank you. Let's, uh, you know, swiftly move on to our next guest who's on the line with us as well, Jenny Ronald, uh, who is a marketing coordinator at Wilderness Awareness School. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, to, for the benefit of my listeners, what are, the, what are the five fundamental survival skills for individuals who are looking into the you know, wilderness, venturing into the wilderness or exploring the outdoors? Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of fundamental skills to have, and I think some of the biggest ones to know are fire making, shelter building, finding water, hmm. um, knowing your hazards, knowing what's in your area, and making sure that you're safe from, uh, yeah, the animals, the trees, or whatever is going on, and um, uh, navigation is also a very important survival skill as well. Yeah, yeah. Talking about some, the attire that that one wears, how can proper clothing and uh, clothing choices actually contribute to one's ability to create effective shelter in you know different environments and different scenarios as well? Yeah, uh, attire is super important. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, where it rains like eighty percent of the year, we have mm. a phrase that we use that's cotton kills. Cotton tends to uh, soak up moisture really easy and stay cold when it gets cold, but we tend to use wool and wool is really important because it will keep you cool when you need to be cool and will keep you warm when it's, even if it's completely drenched, Mm. which is awesome. So wool is really versatile. Yeah. And why is it important to maintain a a fire for for warmth and survival? Uh, could you also you know explain how it's you know the effectivity of this? Yeah, fire is one of the most important survival skills we teach at our school. Uh, it will give you clean water. It can give you cooked food, and it can keep you warm. Um, it's important, especially if you're in a survival situation, to make sure you can get a fire going, depending on where you are. If you can't boil water to make sure it's clean then you're not gonna have clean water to drink which is also extremely important yeah so maintaining a good fire is always awesome (laughs) 
And also, why is it crucial to prioritize hydration in a survival situation? And what are the risks of not drinking enough water? Yeah, hydration is super important. Uh, most humans can go about three days without drinking water and survive. But the longer you go without water, the more your mental capacity depletes. Um, we use water, our bodies use water every day and keeping your hydration um, full is super important for your mental health as well. And if you're not drinking enough water and you're in a survival situation, you're not thinking clearly. So it's super important to maintain hydration. Yep, you're right. And, and Jenny, just lastly, how should individuals plan for their food and water needs um, before they embark on a trip into the wilderness? And why is it essential to assume the need for extra supplies? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, making sure you have enough food and water for however long your trip is going to be and packing extra is crucial because if you do get lost and your trip is extended in one way or another, you get hurt, someone in your group gets hurt, um, you want to make sure you have enough supplies to last you at least 72 hours longer than you think because most people who get lost or get hurt are rescued within 72 hours. So um, making sure you have enough supplies even for that or carrying a little survival kit with you is super important. Great. Thank you, Jenny, for joining us. I think it was our pleasure having you on our show. Thank you once again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. So all of our guests have spoken uh, spoken to us and told us, you know, uh, different uh, survival skills as well and how, and h- how are they important, the reason why they're important and uh, different things that we can do, practical things that we can do as well. Um, there's a there's a brief audio clip that we want to play for for you guys as well. Why you know there's another practical school that we spoke about earlier on in the show. Why is swimming so important and how we can uh, learn how to swim? Why we should learn how to how to swim? Let's listen to that right now. Diamond Swim Academy is a learn to swim provider for children from two and a half years upwards. We focus on giving children the opportunity to learn to swim and to be given the key swimming skills to enable them to reach their maximum potential in a fun and safe environment. Not all people who learn to swim want to be a competitive swimmer. Many are learning to swim to open up pathways and if ever required could be used to save their life. A lot of children nowadays are extremely lucky to experience a variety of after school activities. Swimming is the only sport that can save your life and therefore, in my opinion, the activity that should take focus over everything else. Children should be able to swim at least 25 metres when they leave primary school. A study made last year found that the number of children leaving primary school unable to swim at least 25 metres had grown. Although children get to experience swimming lessons at school, by having additional swimming lessons on a regular basis, this will give swimmers the extra boost and help with continuing the skills learnt before and after the school school lessons. There are so many health benefits associated with swimming. Swimming keeps your child's heart and lungs healthy, improves strength and flexibility, increases stamina and even improves balance and posture. However, another great thing about swimming is that children of any age or ability can take part and it's more accessible for children with additional needs than almost any other sport. The mental health benefits of swimming are also great. 
with swimming helping to improve moods, increase self-esteem, lower the risk of depression, slowing dementia and cognitive decline, and also helps to improve sleep and reduce stress. By learning to swim, you can open up pathways to do so much more. Sports where you need to know how to swim include kayaking, canoeing, scuba diving, surfing, triathlon and yachting, just to name a few. There are many new fun activities which by being able to swim you will be able to try, such as inflatable water parks and paddleboarding. There's no worse a feeling than being the one who is left out or having to sit on the side, watching all your mates have fun because you are unable to join in. People shouldn't be hesitant about learning to swim. Learning to swim is a skill that once learnt is rarely forgotten and is open to people of all ages and abilities. Swimwear has also now advanced to allow swimmers of all religions to experience the water and enjoy swimming. It opens the door to make new friends, grow in confidence no matter how old you are. Swimming provides challenges and reward accomplishments which help swimmers to become self-confident and believe in their abilities. If you would like any further information about Diamond Swim Academy, please get in touch with us via email info at diamondswimacademy.co.uk Don't hesitate, jump in, have fun and learn to swim. Well, absolutely. I mean, swimming, as we mentioned in the beginning, isn't it? It's such a vital skill, it's a life skill that you can save not only your life, but someone else's life as well. Uh, it's important. It's important that we learn this and many other skills as well. Um, you know, there there are so many there are so many skills that sometimes we don't even think about. Anyway, we don't even consider, such as you know, riding a horse. That's a skill as well. I mean, you yeah. never know <clears throat> when you need when you need it. I mm. mean, you might not ever, but you literally never know, isn't it? Um, even hunting, you never mm. know how to. You know, if you need if you need to go out there in the woods or there might come a time where you might mm. literally need to n- need to hunt your own food um it might not happen but you know if you if you know that skill if you know how to do it how to take the you know the skin off and you know how to proper slaughter the animal and mm. all of these things it's you know it's a good skill it's a good skill to have yeah i mean the, the, at least you need to know like the fundamental fundamental uh, skills yeah. right exactly. um let's say some things are more um which are beneficial, more, yeah more like let's say horse riding mm. it, it benefits me if i know how to horse ride and mm. it comes a scenario where i need to do uh transport through uh, me yeah, horses good, and good, stuff good, 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 uh, but let's say swimming is also let's say you can save lives through if you know how to, you have the ability to swim but let's say first aid is it's, it's a skill which you which can benefit others um at any case a, any scenario so I would say that's a fundamental life skill. Self-defense, um, it's a rather, it's a simple skill where if you can mm. learn it, if like, let's say martial arts or any sort of self-defense, um, uh, then that is also a valuable skill for your for, for the entire life. Exactly, um, exactly. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, quite like you, quite right what you just mentioned as well. Um, obviously, the you know the the uh, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran as well that those. Um, people who who benefit mankind are the ones who who live on the life or who live on the earth for long, or they they prevail on the on the on the earth for long. And Allah the Almighty extends their life as well. And obviously, the, you know, the promised Messiah upon whom be the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he has also said that if you want your life to be prolonged, then you should try and help those other people out as well. Um, and if you help other people out, alleviate their pain, their sufferings, their troubles. 
whatever they're going through could be financial problems, could be emotional problems, other physical problems. If you alleviate their pain, Allah the Almighty will extend your life as well. And you will be more happy as well. You'll feel more content with your life uh, also. So these are just some things what uh, what Islam says in regards to helping other people out. In fact, Islam goes even further and states the ultimate ultimate uh, status. It says that you should, you should treat people as if a mother treats her her own children, without wanting any sort of reward, without wanting any sort of um, you know a pat on the back. A mother does everything for her child. Um, you know, do, doesn't matter if she's ill or not. Um, whatever she's going through, she puts that aside and she tries to alleviate the sufferings and t- you know tend to the needs of her children. And that is how we should treat mankind, not just our family members, but treat the whole world. Um, you know, they might be they might be following a different religion, um, treating them as your own as well. Um, and, um, that's what we have time for uh, in uh, in today's show. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we definitely enjoyed it over here. And uh, you know, until next time, we'll talk about some other topics. But uh, thank you to all the guests, the producers, the researchers, uh, Nashirwan yourself, and the technical department. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.